to the heroism of the resistance fighters, past, present, and future, this work is respectfully dedicated. The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. interrupt this program to bring you the following special report from NBC News. This is Christine Walsh. The visitor's supreme commander, John, is here to make a statement. My friends throughout the world, first I must thank the leaders of each of your countries who have graciously and in the interests of peace turned over all their broadcasting facilities to us to help avoid confusion in this crisis. Am I on? This is Chris Cooling, reporting for Forgotten TV. The visitors have now taken control of all of Earth's media. They control nearly everything, TV, radio, and most internet servers. A few of us in the resistance have found rogue servers to get some semblance of truth out there. I'll broadcast from this station as long as possible. People need to know what is really going on. But I suppose I should start at the beginning. It all started on May 1st. 1983, the day they arrived. Tonight on the NBC Sunday Movie, prepare for V, the most extraordinary miniseries ever made. A daring TV journalist struggling to uncover the startling truth behind the aliens' visit to Earth. And a beautiful and brave young scientist fighting for the very survival of the human race. Together, they take you on a fantastic journey to meet the visitors. Prepare yourself for a television event that's out of this world. Prepare for the next. The starring roles in this film are portrayed by Jane Badler, Michael Durrell, Faye Grant, Peter Nelson, David Packer, Neva Patterson, Tommy Peterson, Mark Singer, Blair Tefkin, Michael Wright. Guest starring Bonnie Bartlett, Leonardo Cimino, Richard Hurd, Evan Kim, Richard Lawson, George Morfogan, Andrew Prine, Hansford Rowe, Jenny Sullivan, Penelope Windust. Part 1 Freelance TV journalist cameraman Mike Donovan and his assistant Tony are in El Salvador documenting their ongoing civil war. Embedded with the resistance, fighting a guerrilla war against a military-led government with superior firepower. During a conflict, a gigantic saucer-like spacecraft appears in the atmosphere, causing attacking helicopters 
to flee. Around the world, 50 of these three-mile-wide craft appear over major cities, starting a countdown leading to a short, transmitted message. Citizens of the planet Earth, we bring you greetings, and we come in peace. May we respectfully request the Secretary General of your United Nations, please come to the top of the United Nations building in New York at 0100 Greenwich Mean Time. It's 8 o'clock New York time. This evening. Thank you. Donovan finds his ex-girlfriend, TV reporter Christine Walsh, had also been selected, along with himself, to report the arrival from atop the UN building in New York. Across the country, normal life comes to a virtual standstill as people tune in to the TV broadcasts, reminiscent of the moon landing some 14 years earlier. A humanoid alien, wearing a clearly military-like red uniform, emerges out of a shuttlecraft, identifying himself as John, commander of the fleet of ships. The only apparent physiological difference of this visitor from another planet is an aversion to bright light and a voice that vibrated with an additional resonance. Yet, there is something oddly familiar about their symbol. We have come on behalf of our great leader, him who governs our united planet with benevolence and wisdom. We have come because we need your help. Our planet is in serious environmental difficulty, far, far worse than yours. It's reached a stage where we will be unable to survive without immediate assistance. There are certain chemicals and compounds which we must manufacture, which alone can save our struggling civilization. And you can help us to manufacture these. And in return, we will gladly share with you all the fruits of our knowledge. A collective sigh of relief is felt by everyone as journalists, including Donovan and Christine, are chosen by lot to travel up to the New York mothership to report from inside as a gesture of goodwill and openness. The mediator reveals each mothership holds some 200 shuttle bays and a crew of several thousand. Viewers are also introduced to the visitor, Diana second in command of the fleet and in charge of the scientific aspects of their mission. The visitor's offer seems too good to be true, and various individuals glued to their TV sets across the country react to the unfolding events. In Los Angeles, young biochemist and med student Julie Parrish wonders out loud what would happen if humankind refused the offer. Donovan's mother, Eleanor Dupree, opportunistically encourages her husband to put in a bid for his refinery to be chosen for the manufacturing effort. Anthropologist Robert Maxwell is simply fascinated by the scientific implications of an alien race so similar to humans. Manufacturing plants around the world are retooled to produce chemicals the visitors need for survival on their planet, and troops of visitor technicians are sent to work in them. In the weeks that follow, the visitors quickly become a new and seemingly friendly part of life. Harmony Moore, a food truck server at the Dupree Refinery, meets friendly, tongue-twisted visitor Willie, who later saves plant worker Caleb Taylor from an accident involving liquid nitrogen. 
Robert Maxwell's daughter, Robin, is attracted to Brian, a young leader in the visitor troops, while Eleanor Dupree is enchanted by Stephen, visitor official in charge of security. A visitor youth auxiliary is formed called the Visitor Friends, encouraging teenagers to join their ranks. An aimless 17-year-old, Daniel, finds new purpose with the group. Donovan and Christine's newly rekindled romance is threatened when she is offered the position of spokesperson for the visitors, having been personally selected by Diana. Donovan is concerned this will completely compromise her objectivity. But soon, more pressing issues take hold, as the media reports of a worldwide conspiracy of scientists to seize control of visitor ships confirmed by several prominent scientists who confess to such acts. It is further reported that the scientific community at large had withheld breakthroughs in various fields of research from the public that would have benefited humankind. Damn scientists! The visitors request that all scientists, along with their family members, register with their governments, and restrictions on communications and travel are implemented. A groundswell of resentment and prejudice thus quickly builds against the world scientific community, and anthropologists, chemists, physicists, and others quietly go missing. All this doesn't sit well with Daniel's grandfather, Holocaust survivor Abraham Bernstein, even as family friend Ruby tries to reassure him. Abraham, don't get so wound up. Nothing's going to happen. Not to you or your family. They're not doctors or biologists or even scientists. You're not involved. Anyway, it's going to pass. That's what I said in 1938, back in Berlin. But this is different. Is it? Becoming more deeply suspicious of the visitors, Mike Donovan infiltrates one of the huge motherships and discovers not only that the chemicals being produced for them are pointlessly dumped into the atmosphere, but that the visitors themselves had orchestrated the supposed conspiracy of scientists so they would be ostracized around the world. And Donovan also videotapes a startling revelation. The visitors are not what they appear to be at all, but underneath their human masks, they are cold-blooded reptilians that eat warm-blooded mammals and can spit venom. Diana herself is videotaped stretching her jaw and consuming a live guinea pig. Escaping with this footage, a national broadcast to air it is hijacked by the visitors, who declare martial law. As Donovan becomes a fugitive, haunted by both visitors and human authorities, an underground resistance movement begins to form. In Los Angeles, Julie spearheads the theft of equipment from a biochemical lab, resulting in the death of her friend and colleague, Dr. Ben Taylor. Robert Maxwell and family go into hiding, given refuge by Abraham Bernstein who also shows several youths how to correctly deface visitor propaganda posters with a large V. No! If you're going to do it, do it right. I'll show you.
You understand? For victory. Go tell your friends. Part 2 Donovan returns to the abandoned L.A. suburb where his son Sean lived with his ex-wife Marjorie and finds it to be the aftermath of a war zone. He finds Sean's friend Josh alone, who tells the story of a neighborhood rebellion against the visitors, which resulted in a counterattack where all the humans were killed, fled, or were taken prisoner, including Sean and Marjorie. Hidden, only Josh remains to tell the tale, reminding Donovan of a quote from Job. I only have escaped alone to tell thee. Daniel's increasing intoxication with power comes to a head when he turns in his family for harboring the Maxwells. But they are smuggled out of the city to a resistance mountain camp by Sancho, the Maxwell's migrant gardener. Initially upset that his family is arrested after being promised amnesty, Daniel's feelings are assuaged by a promotion to Brian's second-in-command in the visitor youth ranks. Donovan and Tony infiltrate the Dupree chemical plant in an attempt to sneak aboard the L.A. mothership, but they are both taken prisoner instead, joining the other captives. Once on the mothership, it is revealed that Diana sadistically takes delight in torture, cruel medical experiments, and conversion, a process that brainwashes humans over to the visitor cause. Donovan meets Martin, one of a minority of visitors that do not support their fascistic leader, and he engineers Donovan's escape. Meanwhile, Julie has become de facto leader of the L.A. resistance, setting up operations in an abandoned underground tunnel. She is joined by Robert and Robin Maxwell, the deceased Ben Taylor's brother Elias, and others. Donovan finally meets up with the resistance and educates them on the true nature of the visitors, and they come up with ways to combat them and plan an assault on a local National Guard depot to steal weapons. When Robin wanders away from Resistance Headquarters, she is arrested and taken to the L.A. mothership, where Diana arranges her to be impregnated by Brian while she watches. This, in addition to her clear physical attraction to both Brian and reporter Christine Walsh, establishes Diana has a variety of salacious appetites. When Robert goes to look for her, he is compromised into giving up the location of the mountain camp. Again, sneaking aboard the L.A. mothership to try and rescue Tony, Sean, and Marjorie, Donovan discovers the horrifying truth that the visitors are not only stealing large quantities of Earth's water, but are storing humans to bring back to their planet, some to become troops to fight wars for the leader, and others to serve as food. With his son and ex-wife somewhere among the thousands of storage pods, Donovan has no choice but to leave to tell the others. Martin again helps Donovan to escape in a fighter. Although Tony is now dead, Robin and an abused Sancho are rescued along the way. 
Donovan evades two pursuing fighters with Sancho serving as tail gunner in a dogfight over the LA coastline. Meanwhile, having raided the National Guard Armory, the resistance arrives to defend the mountain camp under attack by sky fighters led by Diana herself, who even from the sky takes note of the defiant Julie. In the nick of time, Donovan and the stolen fighter arrives to even the odds, causing the visitors to retreat. However, the resistance victories have come at a great cost, especially to Robert Maxwell, who lost his wife in the attack on the camp. With the stolen medical equipment intact, the resistance now stands a chance at developing a biological defense against the alien visitors. Donovan confronts his mother with the truth about the visitors, but finds she is now a total collaborator with them. While Robin Maxwell realizes she is pregnant from her sexual encounter with Brian, the surviving Bernsteins come to terms with the fact that Abraham met his end at the hand of the visitors, partially comforted by a letter he had left, reminding them to remember which side they're on and that they have to help those in need, or else they haven't learned a thing from the events of history. Later, at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in New Mexico, Julie and Elias transmit a message into deep space, a long-shot plea for help to any alien enemies of the visitor leader. And former street criminal Elias is instilled with a new purpose in life as he meaningfully spray-paints a V on the door to the facility. Behind the Scenes V aired the nights of Sunday, May 1st and Monday, May 2nd, 1983 on NBC. With Part 1 airing against the Jeffersons, Alice, Trapper John, M.D. programming block on CBS and the ABC Sunday night movie, 1941, and the following night against the ABC Monday night movie, Legs, a TV movie about the Rockettes, and the MASH One Day at a Time Cagney and Lacey programming block on CBS, the miniseries earned an incredible 40 share of the viewing audience and was seen by some 80 million viewers. Watching this as an adult, the allegory is transparent. The visitors are indeed space Nazis complete with a stylized, deconstructed swastika as their symbol, an analog for the Hitler youth integrated into the plot, and re-education in the form of Diana's conversion process. The plot twist revealed well into the second evening was also reminiscent of the Twilight Zone's To Serve Man. However, watching it at age 14 with my family in May of 1983, all this symbolism wasn't quite as clear, and my friends and I were all talking about Diana eating a guinea pig the next day and not fascist allegory. But there was no denying V became a pop culture phenomenon. And let's examine how V came to be shown on our TV screens. Kenneth Johnson, the writer, director, and producer of V, had been no stranger to television. Early in his life, his family moved from Pine Bluff, Arkansas to the Washington, D.C. area, when his father, in the Army Corps of Engineers, was transferred to the Pentagon near the end of World War II. 
As a youth, he became fascinated with Orson Welles' 1938 War of the Worlds radio broadcast. In the mid-1950s, the summer before he entered ninth grade, he bought a tape recorder and, with friends, produced his own version of the radio drama. Johnson attended Carnegie Mellon University, where he graduated with a degree in drama in 1964. After a stint on The Mike Douglas Show, he moved to California and worked as a producer on game shows, such as The Joker's Wild, as well as producing the popular Shamu Killer Whale shows for SeaWorld. There in L.A., he reconnected with former classmate Stephen Bochco, who encouraged him to begin writing his own television content. So in his late 20s, he began writing for Universal Television police shows like Adam-12 and Griff. A spec script he wrote made it into the hands of Harve Bennett, who liked Johnson's writing style. Encouraged to pitch ideas for Bennett's series, The Six Million Dollar Man, he came up with the concept of a female counterpart to Six Mill's Steve Austin. In 1975, he was brought on to write and produce episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, bringing us those iconic Bigfoot episodes, as well as creating the character of Jamie Summers, who became the Bionic Woman when she was given her own spin-off series. Johnson's approach to the Bionic Woman incorporated elements of Greek mythology, but also produced more grounded, even flawed characters in comparison to the original Bionic series. During that series run, Johnson was given the opportunity to develop for television one of several Marvel superhero characters Universal Television had obtained the rights for. Initially wanting to distance himself from fantasy, he wasn't interested in being involved in any superhero properties but was convinced by Universal exec Frank Pierce to go along with producing one of them in exchange for being allowed to produce his pet project of a TV miniseries based on the 1820 novel Ivanhoe. Eventually selecting The Incredible Hulk, Johnson brought the grounded realism he was known for to the project, producing yet another hit show fondly remembered by many. However, in 1978, Price left Universal, and Johnson never got to produce his Ivanhoe project. In 1979, Johnson's mid-season series, Cliffhangers, didn't fare as well as his previous hits. Time for Cliffhangers! Three of your favorite serials. Three brand new chapters. A revival of the old Saturday matinee movie serials in television format. Each hour-long episode contained three 20-minute segments and was incredibly expensive to produce, requiring three production teams operating simultaneously at a reported cost of $1 million per episode. Due to low ratings in the face of competition from ABC hits Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, this led to NBC not renewing the series past its original 10-episode order. After he wrote, produced and directed the 1981 CBS TV movie Senior Trip, which featured 24-year-old actress Faye Grant in an early role, and his Incredible Hulk series wrapping up its final season, Johnson was looking for his next project. Long a fan of early 20th century Nobel Prize-winning writer Sinclair Lewis, 
Johnson was particularly drawn to his 1935 dystopian novel, It Can't Happen Here. The novel, taking place in the then-immediate future, explored what would happen if a modern-day political demagogue in the United States, running under a platform of economic and social reform, nationalism, a return to American exceptionalism, and so-called traditional values where women, blacks, and other marginalized groups would have their rights curtailed, and communism and socialism were constantly denounced, rose to the office of president. After in power, the president performs a self-coup, arranging to stay in power through illegal means, imprisoning members of Congress who oppose him, and imposes totalitarian rule, the same path already taken by Mussolini and Hitler. MGM obtained the film rights for It Can't Happen Here, and commissioned screenwriter Sidney Howard to adapt it into a motion picture. Lionel Barrymore, Basil Rathbone, and director J. Walter Rubin were all attached to the project. But new industry censor Will Hayes talked MGM's Louis B. Mayer out of producing it. Not because it offended any of his standards of decency, but because it was too anti-fascist and would have difficulties with overseas distribution. After all, we wouldn't want to offend Germany or Italy, with Europe being a significant market for exported American films. After about three years of the production being on and off again, the project completely fizzled out. While there were several films with related themes that were a play on the book's title, see 1950's This Can't Happen Here and 1964's It Happened Here, for example, it wasn't until 1968 that an unofficial television adaptation was produced for ABC by Sidney Sheldon, featuring Mark Strange, Jackie Cooper, Gene Hackman, and Carol Lindley, called Shadow on the Land. The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction gives this synopsis. An unspecified national disaster leads a panicked U.S. Congress to grant almost unlimited power to the president, who promptly takes on the title of the leader and sets up a fascist government. Congress passes legislation creating the Internal Security Force, which punishes all dissent 
Identification cards are shortly required for travel within the nation. An underground resistance movement, known as the Society of Man, is formed, although their effectiveness is limited. By the end of the film, concentration camps are established for dissenters, although the society continues to operate. A TV movie pilot for a never-picked-up series, it was derided at the time by critics as being outright fantasy. Interestingly, ABC was nervous about airing it prior to the 1968 election, waiting until December 4th to broadcast it. Screen gems faced network pushback even during the production phase, as pointed out by Jackie Cooper in a period interview. The networks evidently felt it was an attack on our government. Or we were worried about the Republicans. I don't know. We even audience tested it three times, and each time a big percentage said the film shouldn't be shown on the air. I guess they voted for Wallace. Some also felt the network was hesitant to depict a homegrown fascist movement instead of it originating from an outside threat. Shadow on the Land was rerun throughout the 70s and 80s in TV syndication before dropping off our screens around 1989 to relative obscurity. Johnson's other major influence in the development of V was his seventh grade memory of viewing the entirety of the films presented as evidence in the Nuremberg trials, much of which had been proudly filmed by the Nazis themselves. As he told Starlog in 1990, At that time, I chanced to see all of the film that was used in the Nuremberg trials, all of the film of the death camps, the piles of bodies, and the starved men, women, and children. It was really a turning point in my life. Fast forward to 1982. Inspired by the novel and perceiving parallels between the American political climate of the 1930s and that of the increasingly right-leaning 1980s, Johnson wrote a screenplay about a grassroots fascist uprising in a modern-day United States, which he called Storm Warnings. As Johnson told interviewers for the book Science Fiction Television Series, the story was about a vigilante-type organization growing and growing until suddenly we're no longer in the same country. Overnight, we would become a police state. We'd become a right-wing fascist state. Of course, there'd be a group of people determined to fight against them and try to bring the United States back the way it's supposed to be. At a dinner with NBC executive Brandon Tartikoff, they happened to discuss storm warnings, although Johnson was intending to pitch it as a feature film. With NBC in dire need of ratings-boosting content, he let Tartikoff read the script. Tartikoff liked it, but thought the concept of a homegrown fascist political movement in the U.S. to be a little cerebral for the average TV viewer. Thus, Tartikoff suggested the totalitarian force be a readily identifiable foreign power, such as Russia or China, echoing the network pushback that Shadow on the Land received. Johnson didn't think it was realistic that one of those powers could maintain a long-term occupation of the U.S., then NBC VP Jeff Sagansky hit on the idea that the invaders be extraterrestrial. This set Johnson off into exploring how to transform his story into the sci-fi arena. 
I thought maybe there was a way to parallel the Nazis falling in Denmark. They sort of rolled in Denmark and said, Hi, we're going to be your friends. We're here to protect you from the imperialistic English, you lucky people. So I thought about spacecraft being like the Nazi coming into Denmark. And I realized there was a way to do that. That a totalitarian society like the aliens could come in here, showing us one face, if you will, but underneath, guess what? In the case of V, the face underneath is literally the face underneath. They were not humans at all. They were reptilian. Again, this goes back to my studies in evolution and where we could have gone. Johnson wrote a story treatment, merging elements of storm warnings with an extraterrestrial invasion without character names, referring to the cameraman, the teenage girl, and so forth. Finished on July 23rd, Johnson insisted on reading the treatment to the NBC execs himself to be able to address any questions they had while he was presenting it. He was then given the go-ahead to write a script. The 230-page screenplay was completed by August 12, 1982, written by Johnson on legal pads in longhand in 19 days. Johnson snuck in two real-life references to fellow genre television writers in his script. Did you catch them? Jerry Taylor and Sam Egan are both referred to in the script as two of the reporters selected for the visitor press junket. Secretary General is moving up inside the craft again with Jerry Taylor and Sam Egan. This was indeed a reference to writer-producers Jerry Taylor and Sam Egan. Taylor had worked on Johnson's Cliffhangers and The Incredible Hulk. She was later known for her extensive contributions to Star Trek on The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. Egan had also worked on Hulk, and the same year V debuted was a creative force on Auto Man. He also contributed an early script for the 2009 NBC V reboot. While normal pre-production time for a four-hour miniseries would be measured in months, from the time Johnson got the final green light from NBC in late September to the first day of filming was an unbelievably short two and a half weeks. The V miniseries was rushed into filming on October 11, 1982. This was about three months after the infamous and tragic helicopter crash that took place during filming of Twilight Zone the movie, resulting in the death of actor Vic Morrow and two children. The opening segment taking place in El Salvador was filmed over two and a half days at Indian Dunes Film Ranch, northeast of Los Angeles, a frequent filming location, and where the Twilight Zone accident occurred. For his helicopter stunts, director Kenneth Johnson provided detailed plans outlining them to assuage the concerns of Warner Brothers. Stunt pilot Chuck Tamburo flew the helicopter for these scenes, one of which had him flying close by a detonation where 30 gallons of gasoline were ignited to simulate the crash of said helicopter. The scenes depicting the top of the UN building were shot atop the C. Irwin Piper Technical Center in Los Angeles, home of the LAPD Hooper heliport, which has multiple helicopter pads. Some interiors of the mothership were shot at the Anheuser-Busch Brewery in Van Nuys, California, while others were shot on Warner Brothers sound stages. 
Scenes of the Dupree refinery were filmed at the Hayes Generating Station in Long Beach. The interiors depicting the TV network where Donovan was about to air the footage snuck out of a mother ship were shot at KTTV in Los Angeles. The suburb where many of the main characters lived, such as the Bernsteins, Maxwell's, and Donovan's family, was actually Monrovia, California, located east of L.A. The old Belmont Tunnel entrance, located a mile from downtown L.A., stood in for the L.A. Resistance Underground Headquarters entrance. The Belmont Tunnel housed the Hollywood subway from 1925 to 1955, after which it was abandoned. The location has been used in several films, such as The Running Man, Colors, Predator 2, and Reservoir Dogs. The interior of the L.A. Resistance HQ was filmed a dozen blocks away at the abandoned California Bank Building at 5th and Spring Street. The mountain camp scenes were shot at Chiquita Canyon Landfill, just west of Santa Clarita. The Triunfo Pass Earth Satellite Station in Malibu stood in for the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in the final scenes. The facility was called GTE SpaceNet at time of filming. In all, over 120 individual sets were created for V, with Stage 25 at NBC's Burbank Studios standing in for the enormous mothership shuttle bay. Stages 8 and 9 at CBS Studio Center were also used for passageways, labs, and other mothership sets. Like on Star Trek, the turtle shell-shaped doors opened automatically, requiring an off-camera stagehand to operate in real life. The seemingly boundless cavern, ostensibly housing captured humans hanging upside down in suspension, was called the torture chamber by the production crew. Casting Being an ensemble piece with a cast of about 30 main characters, I'm not going into detail regarding every single actor, but let's look at who played some of the key roles. 35-year-old Mark Singer had acted for a decade in one-off and the occasional recurring TV roles, but in 1982, the Canadian actor hit the jackpot with the sword and sorcery fantasy film, The Beastmaster. It was foretold by witches. It was conceived through sorcery. And it was to be destroyed by all that is evil. But the courage of one mortal saved it. And so, into an age of darkness, in a time of mysticism, sacrifice, and plunder, there came the only light. The Beastmaster. By May 1983, the Beastmaster had largely come and gone at theaters, but post-V gained a new popularity, first on home video, cracking the top 20 chart for video cassette sales and rentals, but also on premium cable, hitting both the movie channel and HBO by the end of that year. In fact, in 1984, it was shown so often that the joke was made that HBO stood for Hey, Beastmaster's on. When his agent got him an audition for V late in the week, he was quickly cast and was in front of cameras the following Monday, as he expressed in the original press junket. I'm never sure if I'm the one they had in mind when I get a role or whether I'm just the one who walked in when they had someone else in mind. The film deals with the takeover of all these people's lives, and the same thing happened to us during filming. 
Our lives were quite suddenly taken over by the project. Prior to V, Faye Grant had been known to viewers of The Greatest American Hero as high school student Rhonda. But the character had been phased out of episodes about two-thirds into the second season as the series moved stories away from the high school class taught by Ralph Hinckley. As Grant explained in a period interview, There were some shows where I had three lines, and they were all, Hey, what's going on, Mr. H? I had a talk with Stephen Cannell, who is a wonderful person to work for. It was very frustrating, and I asked out. Following Hero, Grant did a film called Foxfire Light, with Leslie Nielsen and Tippi Hedren which was a rare spec TV movie produced prior to a network bidding on the broadcast rights. Unable to sell it to a network, the film sat shelved until an eventual regional theatrical release in late 1983. But for V, the 25-year-old Grant did not have to audition. Having previously worked with Kenneth Johnson on Senior Trip and The Incredible Hulk, he had sent her a copy of the script treatment, ostensibly to get her opinion of the female characters. It seemed as if the character of Julie had been written with her in mind. As she told Robert Strauss for the V-Files magazine later in 1986, I've never spoken about a character in the first person, but I've been doing this for almost three years. It's like Julie has become me. In the beginning, she was just a character. I don't even think of Julie as a character I'm playing anymore. I feel that if I, Faye Grant, were not an actress, if I were a person who went to medical school and worked in a biochemistry lab, who was faced with an invasion of visitors from another planet, I would be doing exactly what Julie does. It's just the opposite of Jane, Badler, and June, Chadwick because they are completely playing characters. Julie Parrish is me. In writing the character of Julie Parrish, Johnson drew inspiration from André de Jong, a 23-year-old nurse that became an organizer of the Belgian resistance during World War II. Working as a Red Cross volunteer, she helped organize a series of safe houses for British soldiers and downed airmen called the Comet Line exfiltrating over 100 from occupied Belgium. Even after she was captured and interrogated by the Gestapo, the Germans had a hard time believing the slight young woman who appeared younger than she was had any significant role in the Comet Line, which preserved her life. According to Kenneth Johnson, Faye Grant actually met De Jong some years after V aired. Jane Badler was one of the last actors cast in the V Ensemble. The former Miss New Hampshire turned stage actress had started appearing in a few roles on various soap operas, such as The Doctors and One Life to Live, before landing the role of Diana at age 29. As she told interviewer Dan Kopp, I was doing a soap opera at the time and auditioned for V with a bunch of other people. I went back to my hotel, and someone put a note under my door that said, Don't leave town. The next day, I was in prosthetics, and they were making me a head. It all happened very quickly. 50-year-old Richard Hurd, an actor known to TV viewers at the time as Captain Sheridan on ABC's T.J. Hooker, was cast as Visitor Supreme Commander John. Both T.J. Hooker and his film, 
deal of the century were in production at the same time as V. Heard opened up about his role on V and juggling his busy schedule to columnist Kathy Milam in a 1983 interview. I would spend Monday and Tuesday on Hooker, Wednesday and Thursday on V, and Friday and Saturday doing Deal of the Century. On top of that, I was taking a singing lesson one morning a week, attending a movie directing class, and working on several scripts of my own. Michael Wright, who portrayed Elias Taylor, the street criminal turned resistance fighter in the wake of his brother's death, also had limited acting experience, mainly playing urban criminals in TV movies. I basically auditioned for it here in New York. Ken Johnson needed somebody to play that role, and I was edgy enough at the time for this almost gangbanger character who was stealing eggs and things of that nature. I thought the character was well-written. It was a dream come true for me. Robert England, who appeared as the friendly visitor technician Willie, had been acting in TV and film for the better part of a decade in small character roles when V came along, telling Dan Kopp, They liked me at Warner Brothers. I had done three movies there in the 1970s and some guest-starring work on that lot, so by that time I was actually pretty well-known around there. I believe it was Phyllis Huffman who brought me in for V. I went in to see Kenneth Johnson on the back lot, and we all knew who he was. I remember wanting to be a part of anything Kenny Johnson was doing, because everything he touched turned to gold. He had that Midas touch. He was a hit maker. Also, there was something intriguing about this big miniseries, the occupation of Earth by aliens as a metaphor for the occupation of Europe by the Nazis. There was a certain amount of gravitas, and that was very intriguing for me. England went on to reveal that Johnson directed him to use comedian Gene Wilder in interpreting the character of Willie. The year after V, at age 37, England was cast in the role he would become synonymous with, that of the maniacal Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street, which began filming in June of 1984. Did you ever watch the Twilight Zone? Boy, they were they were scary. They were great. I loved it. You you want to see something really scary? Yeah. Okay, pull the car over. Pull the car over. Okay. <laughs> Scare me. What are you doing? Twilight Zone, the movie, rated PG. of the Jedi from the desert fortress of Jabba the Hutt Jedi. to the Death Star of the Galactic Empire to the forest city of the Ewoks this is the climactic chapter in the Star Wars saga remember the force rejoice in the triumph return of the Jedi rated PG now playing at a theater in your galaxy this is the NBC Television Network. You can NBC there, be there. Production. After a two-and-a-half-month film shoot and a work print now assembled, there was just one problem. The miniseries was 15 minutes too long. Not knowing where to cut without damaging the narrative flow or perhaps cutting a subplot entirely, Johnson screened it for Brandon Tartikoff. 
After viewing it, Tartakov decided he would go to the NBC affiliates and ask for an additional 15 minutes for the first broadcast night. A special affiliate meeting was held that approved the delay of local news, and V went overtime. Special Effects Due to the limited time frame of production, no miniatures were ever constructed for the visitor motherships in the first miniseries. Instead, they were all matte paintings where movement in the frame was simulated. Different painters were enlisted to create matte paintings of the motherships, and this is why there are several different visual styles of saucers depicted in scenes that show them hovering over cities around the world. The short production lead time and budget limitations prevented any corrections to the mothership matte paintings. Matte artist Matthew Yurichich had worked on Forbidden Planet, Westworld, Logan's Run, Close Encounters, and Star Trek The Motion Picture, while matte artist Michelle Moen had done art for Heavy Metal, Blade Runner, and a lot of Saturday morning TV. She's had a full career and is still working in the industry. For the mothership interiors, an overly futuristic look was avoided. No walls of lights were seen inside the ships, which had a very utilitarian interior design. Still, the $13.7 million budget was put to good use. A 60-foot full-size mock-up of a visitor shuttle was built. The laser effects, added optically in post-production, were produced at an estimated cost of $1,000 for each laser shot. A full-size, mechanical, latex-covered prosthetic head was constructed for the iconic scene where Diana gobbles down the live guinea pig. A series of three prosthetic air bladders were rigged by special effects man Tom Ryba and concealed on Jane Badler's neck. Badler's hand pushed the guinea pig into the open mouth of the prosthetic head. Then, after a cutaway, Badler is again shown with Kenneth Johnson operating the air bladders to simulate swallowing the rodent. The entire effect took an incredible 13 weeks to complete from start to finish. In the next shot where Donovan fights an unnamed visitor, a prosthetic head was made of stuntman Steve Davison, from which protruded a long, serpent-like tongue, pushed out from the back of the head by Kenneth Johnson. The visitor shuttles and fighter craft were designed over a weekend by production designer Charles Davis. Known for his work on Kenneth Johnson's other productions, The Bionic Woman, The Incredible Hulk, and Cliffhangers. The design of the shuttlecraft was modular, allowing for different configurations of shuttles, for cargo, troop carriers, all the way down to a fighter, with the cargo modules removed. One detailed three-foot shuttlecraft miniature built by master model maker Gregory Jean cost around $20,000 to construct. Gene, who died last year at age 76, was well known to effects fans for his extensive work on Close Encounters, Buckaroo Banzai, Batteries Not Included, the Star Trek films, and heading the ILM crew of six that built the six-foot model of the USS Enterprise-D for Star Trek The Next Generation. To further subtly tie into the Nazi allegory of the story, the visitor laser pistol was modeled after German Lugers. Their uniforms designed to emulate those of the German Wehrmacht 
And of course, the symbol of the visitors is a play on a redesigned swastika. Makeup The Emmy Award-nominated reptilian alien design and makeup for V was done by Werner Kepler under legendary makeup supervisor Leo Lotito Jr. Lotito had nearly a 40-year career in the business. Kepler had done work for Star Trek II and Michael Jackson's Thriller video and went on to work on Star Trek The Next Generation, where he again put his reptilian makeup skills to work, bringing to life the snake-like Sele aliens designed by Michael Westmore. Music Joe Harnell, a composer frequently used by Kenneth Johnson, composed the miniseries theme, for which he earned an Emmy nomination, losing to Billy Goldenberg for Rage of Angels. Harnell is also known for composing themes for Cliffhangers, The Bionic Woman, The Incredible Hulk, and Alien Nation. A 60-piece orchestra was used, conducted by Don Davis and recorded by Robert Fernandez. Different portions of the musical score are patterned after Ludwig van Beethoven's 5th and 7th symphonies. Richard Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries and Mars, Bringer of War, from Gustav Holst's The Planets. More on that score in a minute. During the initial arrival of the visitor technician troops to the Dupree chemical plant, a high school marching band plays the theme to Star Wars, badly, as they disembark, drawing comparisons to the stormtroopers of the Empire. Guerrilla Marketing Three weeks before airing, posters began appearing at public bus stops and subway stations across America of smiling red-uniformed officers with dark sunglasses extending their hands in greeting or showing them with children and elderly people with enigmatic captions like Friendship is Universal and Our Friends. Two weeks prior to airing, these posters had a red V spray-painted on them with no context or explanation. The week before airing, a banner was finally added, saying, The Battle Begins, Sunday, May 1st, on NBC. The paintings for these posters were created by concept and storyboard artist Tom Southwell. Tom can actually be seen on camera in the sequence where Donovan first meets the Resistance as the unnamed character sketching the reptilian face on the wall. Southwell did the original sketches for the four posters, and the actual paintings were handed off to an unnamed person in the art department to complete. Southwell's other credits include work on The Muppet Movie, Blade Runner, Buckaroo Banzai, The Goonies, Short Circuit, and numerous additional films of the 1990s. A fifth piece of art was used for billboard advertising that depicted a visitor posing with two human children in front of Los Angeles with a mothership looming above. The visitor depicted appears to be possibly modeled after actor Andrew Prine, who portrayed Stephen. Kenneth Johnson has a photo of himself posing next to one of these billboards in Los Angeles. The signature on the art is that of artist Ren Wicks. During World War II, he created art for Lockheed ad campaigns and pilot handbooks. 
Howard Hughes tapped him to do poster work for RKO, notably for Jane Russell in Underwater and The Outlaw. His work was also used for 1975's The Great Waldo Pepper and tons of magazine covers and advertising illustrations for brands like Catalina Swimwear in the 50s and 60s. Still, he is relatively obscure outside the art world, and to my knowledge, prior to now, Wicks has never been recognized for his contribution to the V advertising campaign. Thanks to Patrice Girard, exhibition director of the Science Fiction Archives in Paris, who has the original in their archives for asking me to look in to this artist. The four propaganda posters also existed in-universe in the miniseries, used as part of the visitors' extensive propaganda campaign. They were designed after World War II Nazi propaganda posters, such as the one that depicted a German soldier with hand outstretched with the caption La Germania e Verhamenti Vastra Amica, or Germany is truly your friend. Propaganda posters were extensively used during World War II by both the Nazis and the Allies. The specific use of the letter V was prominent during British Prime Minister Winston Churchill's July 1941 radio announcement that launched the V for Victory campaign. The V sign is the symbol of the unconquerable will of the occupied territories and a portent of the fate awaiting Nazi tyranny. So long as the peoples continue to refuse all collaboration with the invader, it is sure that his cause will perish and that Europe will be liberated. Thus was launched the most successful propaganda campaign in history. The concept was inspired by exiled Belgian politician Victor de Lavalaya. In his radio broadcast earlier that year, he noted V was the first letter of the words for victory in both English and French, and that it was the first letter of the word meaning freedom in Flemish and Dutch. For these reasons, V became a multinational symbol of solidarity. The V sign showed up everywhere, painted on sidewalks and walls, chalked onto Allied helmets, on those ubiquitous propaganda posters, and held out as a hand gesture, where the first two fingers were extended and held apart to represent the letter, which became Churchill's de facto trademark. Soon after the Churchill speech, it was noted that the Morse code for V was three dots and a dash. And this manifested itself everywhere, from teachers clapping classrooms to attention, to diners calling the waiter, to church bell ringers calling people to worship, even to a cocktail topped with three cherries and a pineapple wedge. This is Colonel Britton speaking. All over Europe, the V sign is seen by the Germans, and it's beginning to play on their nerves. They see it chalked on the pavements, penciled on posters, scratched on the mudguards of German cars. Men salute each other with the V sign separating their fingers. Now there's a V sound, the sign and rhythm of a great European army, which will one day sweep the Germans away like straws in a flood. It was also realized that three dots and a dash was also the beat of the opening notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. (music) 
The musical passage was incorporated into a wide range of propaganda uses, such as the beginning of newsreels. Likewise, when it came time to compose the score for V, not only was Beethoven's Fifth integrated into the score, but Joe Harnell smartly integrated the recurring motif of three dots and a dash. Morse code for V right into the theme. The 1983 guerrilla marketing campaign for V was the brainchild of creator Kenneth Johnson, who pitched the idea to new NBC exec Steve Somer. But at first, he was reluctant to do so due to the previous disagreements he had had with Somer over marketing for The Incredible Hulk when they were both at CBS. However, Somer leapt out of his chair at the idea after being presented with the concept, exclaiming, That's brilliant! According to Johnson, NBC spent between $1 and $2 million on the ad campaign for V, which also included countdown promos with announcer Danny Dark, telling viewers the number of days remaining to prepare for V. This is the last week to prepare for V, the most extraordinary miniseries ever made. A daring TV journalist struggling to uncover the startling truth behind the alien's visit to Earth and a beautiful and brave young scientist fighting for the very survival of the human race. Together, they take you on a fantastic journey to meet the visitors. Prepare yourself for a television event that's out of this world. Prepare for V Sunday. The Science of V The visitors claim to be from the fourth planet of the star we call Sirius. Sirius is actually a binary system in the constellation Canis Major a main A-type larger star with a relatively tiny white dwarf companion. Also called the Dog Star, Sirius A is a blue-white star 25.4 times brighter than our Sun. Sirius B is about the size of Earth and was the first white dwarf star to be discovered. No planets have been detected in the Sirius system. Sirius A is thought to be too young to have developed planets in its orbit being only 242 million years old, as opposed to the 4.5 billion year age for our sun. Sirius had religious and cultural significance in ancient Egyptian, Greek, indigenous American, and West African peoples. Visitor hand weapons were simply called laser pistols, and we don't learn much about them apart from the fact that they are more powerful than traditional handheld projectile firearms. Each handheld weapon also has a seemingly enormous capacity for energy storage, as they are never seen being reloaded in any manner. No limitations on how many times one can be fired are ever mentioned, and Donovan's stolen laser never dies. In the later series, we learn the chemical element cobalt is required for their operation. The visitors appear to have mastered a type of anti-gravity propulsion for in-atmospheric travel, called the Gravity Drive by Diana, which she notes takes up nearly half the ship. However, the possibility remains that she was lying about the size of the Gravity Drive to conceal the space needed for secret water and human body storage. 
A similar propulsion may be used on shuttles and fighter craft, but these have no visible engines, exhaust, or thrusters of any kind. Still, these are able to vertically take off and land. One would presume the motherships would have some form of faster-than-light travel, but Diana says they can approach the speed of light, not exceed it. The novelization confirms this. With the Sirius system being some eight and a half light-years from Earth, this makes short jaunts between these worlds impossible. Excited observers in the miniseries speculated the visitor motherships must be three miles wide, as did a certain NBC narrator. But the V-novel East Coast Crisis confirmed that this was an underestimate. Each visitor mothership was in fact five miles or eight kilometers wide. Each mothership contained 200 hangar bays, each capable of storing some three dozen craft such as sky fighters, squad vehicles, transports, and cargo shuttles. However, if enormous miles-wide spacecraft appeared in our atmosphere, we'd have issues to be concerned about other than an invasion, according to physicist Lawrence Krauss. A mass of that size would exert significant downward atmospheric pressure. Using his calculations for the 25-kilometer-wide city destroyers seen in 1996's Independence Day, doing some simple back-of-the-napkin math, each V mothership would weigh some 33 billion tons and exert 150 pounds per square inch of atmospheric pressure, or 10 times what is normal at sea level. This would be the equivalent of an extra weight of 10 tons per square foot on every object on the ground surface beneath the ship. As Krauss explains in his book Beyond Star Trek, buildings will normally collapse at five atmospheres of pressure the overpressure put out by the average nuclear weapon at a distance of 10 kilometers. Simply hovering over Los Angeles and other cities as depicted in V would reduce them to rubble. Hitler Youth and Nazis One of the allegorical aspects of the story was the inclusion of the visitor friends that attracts aimless teenage Daniel Bernstein into joining and gives him a sense of purpose. The visitor friends and uniform were indeed patterned after the Hitler Jugend, or Hitler Youth, the youth organization of the Nazi party. Consisting of boys aged 14 to 18, it operated as the only boys youth organization in Germany from 1936 to 1945. Girls could join Bund Deutscher Mädel, or the League of German Girls and younger boys could join Deutsches Jungvolk in der Hitlerjugend, or German youngsters in the Hitler Youth. 82% of German youth aged 10 to 18, representing 7.2 million, belonged to one of the Hitler Youth groups by 1940. Through these organizations, young people were indoctrinated with Nazi ideology. Boys practiced military drills, learned how to handle weapons, worked on farms in the summer, and participated in competitive sports such as boxing. It was a significant time commitment to belong as regular meetings and events were held, often conflicting with church and school. 
Youth members were encouraged to report to their leaders about what was happening in their schools, churches, and families, especially regarding disloyal comments or actions, just as Daniel does to his family in V. Hitler Youth uniforms were light brown in color and similar to the SA, or Sturmabteilung, who were often called brown shirts. Reptilian Alien Conspiracy We reptoids have had a great decade. Thanks to propaganda in the media, we have made society more tolerant of our kind. From the Geico Gecko to the Shape of Water. We even got K. Rule in Smash! We did it, everyone! The world temperature is rising. The time is coming, brethren. Soon we shall fulfill the prophecy, overthrow humanity, and become the true rulers of the world! They say that every year, but they're never gonna do it. <laughs> the concept of reptilian creatures being able to impersonate humans may have originated in the fiction of Conan the Barbarian creator Robert E. Howard. His 1929 story, The Shadow Kingdom, featured serpent men with humanoid bodies and snake heads who could shapeshift and imitate humans at will. Other writers built on this concept including occultist Maurice Dorial, who integrated Howard's Serpent Men into his overarching belief system in the 1940s, which in the 1950s was expanded to include flying saucers and aliens. Ray Nelson's 1963 short story, Eight O'Clock in the Morning, gave us reptilian aliens disguised as humans called the Fascinators, secretly running the world. The fascinators would hide subliminal messages in our media to give commands such as work eight hours, play eight hours, sleep eight hours, and marry and reproduce. A hypnotist stage show accidentally awakens George Nada, who alone can see the fascinators and their hidden messages. You may recognize this story as the basis for the 1988 John Carpenter film, They Live. In 1967, Herbert Shermer of Nebraska told a UFO abduction story that involved aliens who wore uniforms with an emblem of a winged serpent on their chests. Although the drawing done by Shermer of the lead alien looks suspiciously more like Mr. Spock than a reptile, I'll note that in a January episode of Star Trek that year, Captain Kirk was forced to fight a Gorn, a humanoid reptilian alien. Thus, the concept of reptilian-like extraterrestrials had entered the pop culture zeitgeist. The 1974 Saturday morning series Land of the Lost, produced by Sid and Marty Croft, introduced the Sleestacks, intelligent green humanoids with both reptilian and insectoid features. The Sleestacks, along with other creatures, inhabit the pocket universe the Marshall family encounter when they are stranded there. A decade after the V telefilms and series concluded, English author David Icke began integrating an ancient alien reptilian race into his belief system, with the idea that they have influenced human bloodlines and produced reptilian-human hybrids. Thus, the idea that lizard people 
able to conceal their true nature, secretly manipulating world events, gained popularity in conspiratorial circles. A concept strikingly similar to ideas put forth in V. Print Media Additional details about the visitors are revealed in the novelization combining the stories of the first two miniseries by writer A.C. Crispin, released in May 1984 by Pinnacle Books. The novelization tries to fill in all the missing details the miniseries do not answer and provides additional information. For example, when Willie saves Caleb at the chemical plant, frozen flakes of his false human skin come off onto Caleb's clothing. These were collected by Julie's colleague, Ruth Barnes, who looked at them under a microscope and noticed they didn't contain biological cells. Ruth was then executed when she got home, which was shown on screen. It is also revealed the visitors sympathetic to the cause of the humans are not vegetarians, but do not consume intelligent species. They were lied to by their leader's propaganda machine that the inhabitants of Earth were like cattle. The ones that protested once the truth was revealed were disposed of. An extended conversation between Donovan and Martin about the leader's rise to power is also held. How did somebody like that get into power anyway? Donovan asks. Martin looked grim. Charisma, circumstances, promises, Financial backing, a doctrine that appealed to the unthinking, assurances that he, as their leader, would bring them to greatness. Not enough of us spoke out to question him, or even took it seriously, until it was too late. It's happened here on your planet, hasn't it? Additionally, in 1984, the V Storybook was released in the UK from World International Publishing. This was a hardcover, magazine-sized book containing several short stories suitable for young readers. More novels and comic books were released, as well as toys and other licensed products, which I'll get into in the next podcast. Home Video and Worldwide Distribution Thirteen years after V aired, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich incorporated some of the concepts presented in V in their 1996 film, Independence Day, such as giant mother ships hovering over major cities worldwide and a synchronized global countdown between the ships. The pair of filmmakers later caught up with Kenneth Johnson outside an awards ceremony, wanting to meet him. This prompted Johnson to joke, Where's my cut of the $400 million? V was distributed worldwide, airing overseas in at least 19 countries. In several Spanish-speaking lands, it carried the awesome and dramatic title of Invasión Extraterrestre. The miniseries was released to VHS in 1995, winning the Saturn Award for Best Genre Video Release. As Johnson reported, In Germany alone, on video, it made a million dollars. When it aired in apartheid South Africa, the white government saw this as, wait, this has white people and black people working together. The response was the same as when Europe saw it. The black people started spraying big red bees all over. We were also huge in Japan. I was on a promotional tour to Japan, and you couldn't walk down the street without seeing signs for V. 
Germany closed the schools to make sure everybody watched it. V made it to DVD in 2001. Although originally shown in the standard 4 to 3 television aspect ratio, Johnson filmed the miniseries with an eye to framing for a 185 to 1 theatrical aspect ratio. Thus, when the DVD format came along, V was able to be presented in widescreen. Also, Johnson was able to remaster the audio into a Dolby Digital Surround 2.0 track. A 25-minute period making of documentary is also included. Sadly, a planned gag reel was not included due to Warner not wanting to pay additional royalties to the actors. Warner Home Video was surprised at the sales figures of the DVD release, selling 2.5 million copies, generating some $50 million in revenue. In 2019, Warner Archive brought the title out again for a Blu-ray release. The 2001 special features were ported over for this release, which includes a full-length commentary by Kenneth Johnson. I actually prefer the DVD presentation, as the additional resolution of high definition really highlights the matte lines and other effects limitations of the production. Finally, a tragic event marred the production of V, requiring the recasting of a key role. Sensitive listeners, please note this segment deals with domestic abuse and murder. The actress originally cast as teenage Robin Maxwell was killed during production. Dominique Dunn had made her television debut in 1979's ABC Movie of the Week, Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker just before she turned 20 years old. She then made a string of appearances in TV episodes and TV movies, but is best remembered for her role of teenage daughter Dana Freeling on 1982's Poltergeist. The young actress had come from a Southern California life of relative privilege and from a family that provided access to the entertainment industry. Her father was novelist and TV producer Dominic Dunn, her older brother Griffin was himself an up-and-coming actor. Her godfather, Martin Manulis, was also a producer, who had been the showrunner of James at 15. In 1981, Dominique Dunn met and began a relationship with John Thomas Sweeney, a sous chef at Ma Maison, an exclusive L.A. restaurant hotspot, where he worked under a then-obscure chef named Wolfgang Puck. Ma Maison was owned by restaurateur Patrick Terrell, who kept the phone number unlisted, reportedly saying, If you don't have the number, we don't want you. Within a few weeks, Sweeney and Dunn had moved in together, and after some months, she introduced him to her father and brothers, then living in New York. However, an incident where Sweeney had a violent overreaction to a tipsy fan who recognized Dunn from Poltergeist concerned them. The pair were from entirely different backgrounds, as Sweeney had grown up poor in a Pennsylvania coal town and had worked hard to distance himself from his working-class origins. He soon began to attend Dunn's acting classes and show up on set when she was working but the true nature of their relationship remained hidden to others. After several physically abusive incidents behind closed doors, 
On August 27th of 1982, Dunn showed up, seeking refuge at her mother's house, followed by Sweeney banging on the house windows, bringing the abuse to the attention of her family. Following another assault on September 26th, when reportedly Sweeney threw her to the floor and choked her, Dunn broke off the relationship and had Sweeney move out. Five weeks later, on the night of October 30th, she was rehearsing scenes with V co-star David Packer when Sweeney arrived, wanting to move back in with her. This led to an argument outside her West Hollywood home, ending with Sweeney choking Dunn to unconsciousness. With Packer inside becoming aware of the escalating argument, he called the police. But in this pre-911 era, was connected to the wrong police department and was told Dunn's West Hollywood home was not in their jurisdiction. Becoming increasingly alarmed, not only for Dunn, but of the potential danger he himself was in, he dialed the familiar number of a friend whose answering machine picked up and he left the harried message. If I die tonight, it was by John Sweeney. Eventually leaving the house, he saw Sweeney, who told Packer to call the police and that he had killed Dominique Dunn. Sweeney was taken into custody. The next day when her father arrived at the hospital, Kenneth Johnson and David Packer were both in the waiting room. She never regained consciousness and was taken off life support at Cedar sinai Medical Center six days later. Her donated organs helped, at minimum, three people in immediate need of a heart and kidneys. Dunn's godfather, producer Martin Manulis, gave her eulogy at the funeral, which was filled to capacity by people that knew and loved her. She was buried near two of her mother's close friends, Norma Crane and Natalie Wood. Production on V was halted for two weeks while the role of Robin Maxwell was recast. Relatively unknown actress Blair Tefkin, recently appearing in Amy Heckerling's Fast Times at Ridgemont High, was cast, and scenes already filmed with Dunn had to be reshot. On November 18th, TV viewers got a glimpse of the abuse Dunn had suffered when she posthumously appeared on an episode of Hill Street Blues. Playing a teenage mother who was the victim of parental physical abuse, Dunn arrived to the set with her face and neck visibly bruised. Thus, no makeup was needed to depict the fictional abuse her character experienced in the episode. Her family didn't learn this fact until it came out during the trial of John Sweeney. I won't go into great detail on the trial, which has been covered by several excellent podcasts and articles, not the least of which is the one written by Dunn's father, Dominic, in Vanity Fair magazine. Mamezon owner Patrick Terrell, having invested time and money into Sweeney's training, came to the defense of his employee in the press and paid for a prominent lawyer to assist the public defender, which more than likely altered the course of the trial. The trial started in August 1983, and Sweeney's legal team was ruthless in their defense, complete with victim-blaming, successfully having evidence excluded, 
and presenting a now-weeping, Bible-clutching Sweeney as a blue-collar kid who got mixed up in Beverly Hills society and couldn't handle it, and not a serial abuser of women. The judge also independently questioned witness David Packer about whether or not he wore glasses, which seemed to undermine the testimony he had just given. Sweeney was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter, which was announced to the collective gasp of the courtroom. When the judge thanked the jury on behalf of the Dunn family for reducing the verdict to manslaughter, Dominic Dunn finally verbally exploded at the judge and began to leave the courtroom. And here, I'll quote Mr. Dunn. The room was silent. At the double doors that opened into the corridor, I turned back. My eyes locked with Judge Katz's, and I raised my hand and pointed at him. You have withheld important evidence from this jury about this man's history of violence against women. Days later, five minutes after the judge sentenced a man just convicted of the nonviolent robbery of a flower shop to five years, Sweeney was sentenced to six and a half years in a medium security prison. With good behavior and time served, he was out on parole in three When Sweeney was quickly hired at another trendy L.A. restaurant following his release, Dominique's brother Griffin and other members of the family were incensed enough to hand out flyers outside the eatery, informing patrons of just who was preparing their meal. Sweeney then quit his job and, following his parole, moved away from California, changing his name. For years, Dominic Dunn, had a private investigator keep tabs on the whereabouts of Sweeney, but eventually stopped. The renamed Sweeney later moved to Northern California, and at least until recently was the general manager of a homeowners association. Forgotten TV will continue in a moment. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. They're clever. They're mischievous. They'll get into the kitchen, the basement, the garage. They'll get into anything. And once they get in, you're in for it. Gremlins. They'll be expecting you at a special sneak preview Saturday, May 19th. Directed by Joe Dante. Rated PG. He's a big city kid living in a small town. A lot of folks are going to give you problems right off. He's going to wake him up. Is there a law against loud music? Shake him up. Ren McCormick made a lot of people stop and think. And turn him around. Let's dance! Let's give him a Paramount Pictures presents Kevin Bacon, Laurie Singer, Footloose, rated PG. Starts Friday, Man National Westwood, Man Chinese Hollywood in a theater or drive-in near you. This is the NBC Television Network. The V miniseries aired a week before the 1983 fall season was finalized, and considering its clear rating success, it was considered a strong contender for a regular fall series. However, it was Kenneth Johnson who put the brakes on this idea, telling NBC's Brandon Tartikoff, You cannot afford to do this show on an episodic basis. Let me tell you how we should do it. 
Give me two hours on Sunday night, once a month, or every six weeks, and I will give you a continuing two-hour saga that we would do four or five over a year. Tartikoff would not approve this concept, but by the end of June, NBC agreed to a second V miniseries to air the following year as a three-part, six-hour drama that picked up the story where the first one left off. To be written by Diane Froloff, Craig Buck, and Peggy Goldman under the supervision of Johnson. However, Warner did not want to do a sequel miniseries because they felt it would be too expensive. So NBC promised both parties a 12-hour blind series commitment, a yet-to-be-determined future series with Johnson producing. Even though, according to Johnson, NBC was elated with the six-hour script already hammered out by the writing team, difficulties soon arose, to put it mildly. Not only did Warner Brothers slash $5 million from the production budget, NBC wanted the sequel ready for its May 1984 sweeps week, giving the entire project a deadline less than a year away. This resulted in a frustrated Johnson leaving the project, as he told Starlog in March 1986. My feeling was that Warner Brothers was worried I wouldn't do V as quick, cheap, and dirty as they wanted it done. And they were right, so I left. They were astonished because I also had at the time a 12-hour blind series commitment with NBC through Warner Brothers, which was going to bite the dust if I left. That's about a half million dollars. And they said, nobody walks away from that. I said, oh yeah, read my lips, guys. Then they brought in more writers and totally bastardized the six-hour script we had written. Harry and Renee Longstreet, as well as Brian Taggart, all share additional writing credits for the sequel miniseries. And new executive producers Daniel Blatt and Robert Singer were brought in to head the project. As Johnson tells it, NBC felt their new version was apparently not as good but were so close to production, they had to go with it. Initially announcing the title of V, The Conclusion, in early April 1984, the title was changed to the more exciting V, The Final Battle. The NBC promos began running, which included in-universe bumpers from Supreme Commander John. People of Earth. Join us on May 6th and celebrate the first anniversary of our arrival on your planet. We are your friends. As well as the traditional style promos, again narrated by Danny Dark, promising the return of V, May 6th, 1984. Last year, the visitors arrived, and to Robin, one of them was very special. Now the truth is out. The visitors are not our friends. They are not like us. But Robin found out too late and will soon give birth to a visitor's child. It all happens May 6th when the world fights back. Don't miss the incredible all-new epic where everything you can imagine happens. The the Final Battle on NBC. Part 1. Four months after the events of the first miniseries, the Resistance attacks a so-called Visitor Orientation Center where rounded-up humans are packaged to be sent up to the L.A. mothership. However, they find shock trooper armor to now be able to deflect traditional military firearms and are forced 
to fall back. New recruits have joined the resistance, such as Father Doyle and Caleb Taylor, Elias's father. Back at resistance headquarters, teenage Robin's pregnancy is now showing, but she conceals the identity of the father from everyone and secretly misses Brian, the visitor who impregnated her. Meanwhile, Brian and Diana are now on intimate terms and enjoy each other while watching a recording of Robin and Brian's sexual encounter. Daniel Bernstein has been promoted to a leadership position of the Friends of the Visitors and becomes increasingly cruel to his fellow humans, drunk on the power. Meanwhile, reporter Christine Walsh begins to realize Donovan may have been telling her the truth about the true nature of the Visitors after being confronted by a distinguished doctor that formerly respected her. Donovan sneaks into his mother's house to steal credentials for an upcoming visitor media event. This forces a confrontation between the two, and Eleanor again makes clear where she stands when she unloads her revolver as he gets away. Christine goes looking in restricted areas on the mother ship and finds the cavernous storage bay with the thousands of humans Captain Stasis pods. Caught in a nearby corridor, she weakly passes off that she was lost. Willie and Harmony are in a secret relationship and get captured by the resistance. Willie's presence confirms the true nature of the visitors to the horror of both Harmony and Robin, and Robin demands an abortion, which spurs a debate over the issue. The argument is made moot when medical tests reveal it is impossible to abort. John's press conference, where he ostensibly will announce a universal vaccine against cancer, is a worldwide media event broadcast to the world by the L.A. Mothership. Infiltrated by the resistance, Julie rips off John's face mask on live TV. Unable to comply any longer, Christine hurriedly announces the truth in her broadcast and is gunned down by Diana. While the resistance escapes with the help of the visitor fifth column, Julie is left behind and captured. While the visitors produce a fake broadcast claiming the events of the night before to be a resistance stunt, Julie faces Diana's conversion chamber. Part 2 at the L.A. Resistance hideout, mercenary Ham Tyler and his wingman Chris show up in the nick of time to fend off a visitor attack. Ham offers them the opportunity to join the larger worldwide resistance, which has its benefits, including access to armor-piercing bullets and voice-change modulators so they can pose as visitors. With their location now blown, the resistance sets up shop at a movie ranch outside the city. Eleanor Dupree, having been given the job of worldwide spokesperson for the visitors, asks Stephen for the return of young Sean Donovan. Her husband, realizing Sean will now be used as a pawn to entrap Mike Donovan, is disgusted with her and leaves. Diana has difficulties completing Julie's conversion due to a congenital heart condition, leaving the results of the process questionable. 
Meanwhile, a new mothership arrives to Earth with a new visitor squadron commander and rival for Diana in the form of Pamela, which promises to disrupt the power dynamic aboard Diana's ship. When a visitor fifth columnist posing as Donovan aboard the L.A. mothership is killed attempting to assassinate Diana, it reveals their presence. As a result, all valued human prisoners are to be brought down to the L.A. Visitor Security Headquarters, where Ruby, kind family friend to the Bernstein family, is positioned as a maid. The Resistance attacks and rescues Julie. However, Daniel cements his conversion to the side of evil when he kills Ruby in cold blood. Julie and Donovan, now reunited, consummate their feelings for each other, following a reconnaissance mission. Having discovered a mothership is sucking up water from an area reservoir at a rate of one million gallons per minute, the Resistance carries out a successful attack on the water pumping station. While their escape is covered by an injured comrade left behind, the destruction of the pumping apparatus returns the stolen water to the reservoir. Having retrieved Sean from stasis, Diana engineers an exchange. Sean for Donovan. Again captured and aboard the mothership, Diana uses truth serum on Donovan, blowing Martin's cover and making them both fugitives on the ship. And Robin gives birth via C-section, first to an apparently human girl who extends a serpent-like tongue, then to a completely reptilian infant who crawls out of her womb on his own. Oh my God! Part 3 Robin's human-looking baby, named Elizabeth, begins growing at a phenomenal rate, while the reptilian baby quickly dies. Blood work shows a hybrid of Earth and visitor bacteria killed it, meaning a biological weapon against the visitors may now be possible. Donovan and Martin skydive out of the mothership, and Donovan reunites with the Resistance and Sean, while Diana deals with Pamela breathing down her neck. However, Stephen refers to a spy planted in the Resistance, and it quickly becomes clear he is referring to Sean. Julie and team develop a pathogen called Red Dust, and Ham and Caleb kidnap Brian to test it on, while framing Daniel for the incident. As a result, Stephen has Daniel dragged off to serve as food. With Brian imprisoned, Robin herself throws a vial of red dust into his sealed chamber, killing him. Julie also impulsively enters the chamber to prove the red dust is not toxic to humans and can be safely used as a weapon. Fearful of Elizabeth's safety, Father Doyle brings her to Diana, hopeful that she can represent the possibility of peace between the two races. After examining the Bible Father Doyle gifted her, Diana found she didn't like its message and destroys both Doyle and his Bible, which is witnessed by Elizabeth. The converted Sean spies on Resistance plans and reports right to Stephen and Eleanor. But when Pamela doesn't take Sean's intel seriously, Diana relieves her from command with a laser blast and deploys defenses. But Julie, suspicious of Sean, has arranged a complete change of plans. 
Simultaneously, the resistance infiltrates the mother ship to dispense red dust in the ventilation system, while a team led by Ham attacks the L.A. Visitor Security Headquarters on the ground. When Eleanor runs out to switch sides, claiming she had been held against her will, Stephen shoots her in the back. With the headquarters overtaken, Ham exterminates Stephen with red dust. Worldwide, resistance members use hot air balloons to release red dust across the planet, spelling doom for the visitors as 49 of the mother ships leave Earth's atmosphere. Enraged, Diana kills John and engages an unstoppable doomsday device as the resistance penetrates the bridge. As Martin tries to fly the ship away from Earth, Diana escapes. With only seconds to spare, Elizabeth steps forward. Grasping the controls of the doomsday device, she glows with otherworldly power and inexplicably stops the countdown. As Diana flies away in a fighter with a smirk, the triumphant humans fly the mothership back to Earth. Behind the Scenes Yes, V returned with The Final Battle for three nights this time on May 6th, 7th, and 8th, 1984. And this time, it went toe-to-toe against a competing three-installment miniseries on ABC. Sunday night, it aired earlier in the evening than the first miniseries at 8, 7 central against Comedy Block, Aftermash, The Four Seasons, The Jeffersons, and Alice on CBS. And ABC's Last Days of Pompeii, Part 1. On Monday night, it aired at 9, 8 central against Last Days of Pompeii, Part 2. And the programming block, Kate and Allie, Newhart, and Cagney and Lacey on CBS. The final Tuesday night installment battled the final Last Days of Pompeii on ABC and a Tuesday night movie on CBS, a repeat of Agatha Christie's A Caribbean Mystery. The final battle was nearly as successful as the original miniseries, averaging a 25.1 Nielsen rating and a 37 share over its three broadcast nights, handily beating ABC's Pompeii. Some 50 million viewers are estimated to have watched the final battle during its original broadcast. As previously mentioned, after Kenneth Johnson dropped out of the project, V. The Final Battle was taken over by Blatt Singer Productions, who had put out two TV movies and previously worked with Warner Brothers. The experienced Richard T. Heffron was brought on to direct, who had done several TV movies, as well as the feature film Future World. Michael Ironside joined the cast as fan favorite Ham Tyler, cynical mercenary for hire who calls Mike Donovan Gooder, short for do-gooder, referring to Donovan's tendency to help those in need. Ironside is an extremely prolific actor, seen in many genre films. At the time of casting, he was primarily known for 1981's Scanners, and his character of Daryl Revick was seen on the one-sheet and VHS cover for that film. Ironside related how he was brought on to the V-Cast to the V-Files magazine. I was brought on to V through Brian Taggart. 
He was a writer on the six-hour sequel, as well as on a movie I had just done, called Visiting Hours. Brian had a character named Ham, who was in a wheelchair, but felt they needed someone with more grit or more punch to kind of balance out the good side of the resistance, to show the violent, hard-hitting side. So I was basically asked to come in and supply some grit. I have to balance Mark Singer's character, who doesn't agree with the way Ham does things. And my character feels the same way about him. Ham Tyler's wingman Chris Farber was played by Mickey Jones. Highly recognizable with his red hair and trademark beard, Jones would often play bikers, truckers, and good old boys, and was in nearly 50 films over his 47-year career. The original name of Jones' character was supposed to be Faber, but Michael Ironside kept pronouncing it Farber enough times that they ended up changing the character name. Jones is no longer with us, having died in 2018 at age 76. Sarah Douglas shows up as Pamela, new visitor fleet commander making Diana's life complicated on the mothership. Douglas is well known for her iconic role of the woman Ursa on the first two Superman films. Two months after the final battle aired, moviegoers would see her as the Dagoth-worshipping Queen Taramis on Conan the Destroyer. Nine-year-old Ginny Beck, previously seen on Father Murphy, was young Elizabeth the Starchild. The ubiquitous Dick Miller also makes an appearance as Dan Pascal, underground counterfeiter of fake IDs. Jane Badler, of course, returned as the diabolic Diana, and her villainy played up even more in this installment. As the press release for the final battle related, Jane Badler's character in V, The Final Battle, is not Shirley Temple. Diana eats live animals. She will sleep with anybody or anything to advance her career. She kills, maims, and tortures. This is a fun lady. Badler admitted her character wasn't toned down a bit the second time around in the press junket for the final battle. Trust me, this character is absolutely as outrageous as ever. This time around, I eat a live lovebird instead of a rat, but little else has changed. In my entire career, I don't think I'll ever encounter another character quite like this one, because you really have fun playing someone like her. Acting can sometimes be a very painful experience particularly when you're dredging up the dark recesses of your mind for some heavy dramatic scene. But this is just pure fun. This character is so completely removed from anything I've ever encountered in my life. Playing her has been a totally new experience. Although actor Frank Ashmore was seen in the first miniseries, his role of fifth columnist Martin was expanded for the final battle. But he nearly wasn't included at all as he told the V-Files magazine. When it went into the six-hour sequel, Ken Johnson left the project, and I suddenly found myself without a job. I didn't understand why. I went to the producer and talked to him about how strongly I felt about the character and how essential he was to the story. The producer and director both agreed that Martin was a viable character and that he should stay. So, I continued along in the six-hour series when all of a sudden I started getting this tremendous onslaught of mail from fans. I had no idea that my character was having that kind of an effect on people. I realized from that 
that people really did enjoy the fact that the aliens were neither black nor white, that there were gray areas there. As we'll see in the next podcast, Ashmore had an interesting future in store for his character. Eric Johnston, who returned to play Donovan's son, Sean, left acting entirely after the final battle and grew up to be a game programmer for LucasArts. But I thought this was pretty neat. You may remember the Bat Kid news story from 2013, where five-year-old Miles Scott was given his Make-A-Wish dream and San Francisco turned into Gotham City for a day, enabling Miles to help his favorite cape crusader save the city from the Riddler in an elaborately produced rescue attended by 20,000 people. Well, this may be the feel-good story of the year. A boy's wish about to come true. A young leukemia patient is being given a chance to live out his dream to be a superhero. And I'm like, there's a lot of cops around, and he needs a car seat. I see massive thousands of people. I don't even know how to describe Gotham City needs you, Bat Kid. The story has gone viral with folks from all over the world cheering him on. Every actor that ever played Batman was tweeting, Adam West on line one. Okay, that's normal. Let me out! No! Way to go, Miles. Way to save Gotham. Appearing in the style of Christian Bale's Batman was none other than Eric Johnston, whose software engineering background, gymnastics, and acrobatic skills were instrumental in carrying out Miles' Make-A-Wish. The highlight for me, honestly, was at lunchtime when he was out of energy. We had saved the city already. We had captured the Riddler, and he looked at me and actually said, I think I'm done today. I'm not sure that I want to know if the penguin is out. And I said, but we might see him, so what would we do? And then as soon as he looked out and he saw the penguin with Lucille, he started to rev up and his dad came over and said what if i ride in the batmobile with you miles battled leukemia and when you're tired you can't stop and today he was tired and he kept going the whole story is documented in the 2015 film bat kid begins the wish heard around the world last information i could find about miles was that he is now 14 and cancer free Johnston now holds six patents revolving around quantum computation and computer graphics. Filming Locations With a budget of $14 million being stretched to cover the entire six hours of the sequel miniseries, producers made good use of readily available locations, staying very close to home. The euphemistically named Visitor Orientation Center that humans were herded into was the redressed exterior of Warner Brothers Stage 6. The Los Angeles Medical Center was the NBC building, now called the Burbank Studios, at the intersection of West Olive and West Alameda in Burbank. The long-closed Chadney's Steakhouse is visible across the street in scenes. The Los Angeles Visitor Security Headquarters was really Alverno High School in Los Angeles, recognizable from numerous film and TV productions. The Resistance Headquarters first moved to was the then-abandoned Lincoln Heights Jail northeast of downtown L.A., 
The movie ranch the Resistance then relocated to was Rancho Maria and Sable Ranch, located outside Santa Clarita. The locations have an old west town and stationary four-car train that housed Resistance members. The location is frequently used for film and TV. The Sean and Mike Donovan prisoner exchange was held at the famous Bronson Caves in Griffith Park. The lighthouse seen where the Resistance secretly met 5th Column members was the Point Vicente Lighthouse in Palos Verdes. This location is highly recognizable from TV of this era, such as Fantasy Island and Wonder Woman. The water pumping station hooked up to a mothership via a map painting was the Castaic Hydroelectric Power Plant, where California State Aqueduct Water, en route to Southern California, is pumped up through the Tehachapi Mountains. Viewers of a certain age may recognize the flood footage used after the destruction of the water pumping station to be from 1974's Earthquake. By the early 80s, a regular in TV syndication, often playing on weekday afternoon movies under banners like The 430 Movie or The Million Dollar Movie. Various street scenes were filmed in downtown L.A. The Rosslyn Hotel is clearly visible in one scene, as can a crowd of onlookers lining the street. The balloon scenes were shot at the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta in New Mexico. Filming an event already taking place allowed the production to save quite a bit of money, especially with only having to provide one hot air balloon, the one with the large V on the side. In the novelization, this balloon was purchased by Ham Tyler for the special occasion of releasing the red dust. While I wasn't able to find exact filming dates for the final battle, a banner over West Alameda Avenue in Burbank advertising a winter high school alumni concert suggests they were filming in December 1983 or early January. Sound effects recycled from Star Trek are distinctly heard throughout and redressed commercial products were used as props, such as a handheld Sony Watchman TV and JVC Videosphere portable TV seen on the mothership. Like in the first miniseries, the glasses the visitors wore were Italian Papillon brand 2001-S model sunglasses. Costuming Note that for this installment, gold trim is added to the collars and edges of the vests on some visitor uniforms. Costumes for both miniseries were designed by Brienne Gladoff, who had previously worked with Kenneth Johnson on The Incredible Hulk. She went on to work on the 1987 Sam Jones TV movie, The Spirit, as well as Johnson's Alien Nation and Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, for which she was twice nominated for an Emmy Award. While Chuck Davis didn't return, the very competent Mort Rabinowitz took over production design. TV viewers had previously seen Mort's work on Logan's Run, Time Express, and the creepy Salem's Lot. Rabinowitz was assisted by set designer Curtis Schnell, who later graduated to production designer of Dark Skies and Crossing Jordan. New music was composed for the final battle by Barry Dvorzon and Joseph Conlon, including the now iconic militaristic opening credits theme. Dvorzon composed music for Bless the Beasts and Children, which included a musical passage later used for The Young and the Restless. 
Conlon is known for his music for Sidekicks, Tour of Duty, and Hard Time on Planet Earth. Together, the composing team were also the talents behind the themes for Simon and Simon and 1985's Stick with Burt Reynolds. In the middle of production, composer Dennis McCarthy was brought on, who completed the scoring for parts two and three. Viewers that pay attention to the score may note two distinct musical styles at different points across the six hours. This is especially noted with V-Day near the end of part three with its sweeping, uplifting theme that imparts hope for the human race for the first time across the five parts of the saga. But you might note McCarthy teases this theme much earlier in part two, during a brief downtime between the ill-fated Mark and Maggie right before they go on the mission to destroy the water pumping station. The well-known McCarthy's other credits range from Enos to MacGyver, and he also gave us the themes for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. V The Final Battle soundtrack has never received an official release, but McCarthy did release his compositions on a promotional CD in 2009. V The Final Battle was nominated for three Emmy Awards for makeup, film sound editing for a limited series or special, and special visual effects, but did not take home any awards. Unlike the more subtle references Kenneth Johnson integrated into the first miniseries, here in the first hour, both fascism and the Nuremberg trials are blatantly name-dropped. Donovan and his mother also have an interesting conversation as her cozy position of relative privilege allows her to basically ask, What fascism? Look at us. This is crazy. Why have you forced me into this position? Because you said it could never happen here. But we woke up one morning and we were in a fascist state. Those of us who respect law and order are free. It's criminals like you who cry fascist. You're just as free as the leash you're on. You tug it too hard, they'll hang you by it. Good night, Mother. Don't test me, Michael! I'm warning you. You'd shoot your own son. In another outright reference to World War II, visitors sympathetic to the human cause are now called the Fifth Column. A fifth column is a faction of agents that work to undermine a nation from within, using either overt or clandestine means. The term originated in the Spanish Civil War, as General Emilio Mola Vidal's four army columns marched on Madrid, Spain. The general referred to his militant supporters within that capital as his fifth column, intent on undermining the loyalist government from within. During World War II, propaganda posters began denouncing fifth columnists in the U.S., whether these were perceived or actual. Life magazine warned the public of the domestic signs of Nazi fifth column everywhere. Following the attack on Pearl Harbor, Dr. Seuss drew a political cartoon framing nearly identical-looking slanted-eyed West Coast Japanese Americans as fifth columnists lining up to receive their ration of TNT, with the caption, Waiting for the Signal from Home. Actor George Takei will tell you what happened to him and his family as a result of this racist 
propaganda. The fifth column phrase was used so often during this era that a New York Times reporter in 1940 stated that the phrase has been worked so hard that it no longer means much of anything. The term has been used several times since and is still relevant, having been used even recently to describe Russian citizens who oppose their nation's invasion of Ukraine. However, in V, the final battle, much of the socio-political allegory of the original was dropped, including the engineered persecution of scientists and the subtle character nuances of the human collaborators. Creator Kenneth Johnson was so disappointed in the direction the project was going, he had his name taken off the writing credits, substituting Lillian Weezer, the name of his dog. Although Johnson says he never sat down and watched the finished project, he was flipping through channels on TV one day and happened to catch a scene. The one where Father Doyle attempts to proselytize to Diana with the Bible. A scene that originally was written with more depth as compared to what was actually filmed. As Johnson told Ed Gross in a 1986 Starlog, we were going for a young, hip priest, and they went the opposite direction with a good old Irish priest. Let me explain to you about the glory of God, Diana. Right away, I said, oh boy, I see where this went. Then I watched Jane Badler twirl her mustache through the whole scene before she kills him. The way we had written it, Diana was really showing some vulnerabilities. She really had been moved and touched by this whole situation with the priest, and she was scared by it because she didn't want to feel these things. When she killed him, there was sweat on her brow, and she wasn't doing an impersonation of a Republic serial bad guy. It originally had real depth and character, and all that was gone. Other changes were made to the character of Ham Tyler, who originally was in a wheelchair, as previously mentioned, and the entire plot point regarding the call for help broadcast to the enemies of the visitor leader was dropped. Johnson also agrees with many critics about the total deus ex machina mystical ending, with Elizabeth the Star Child saving the mother ship by inexplicably laying hands on the controls and having a glowing aura form around her, saying... What the hell is that? It doesn't have anything to do with anything. Our ending had Diana and Elizabeth escaping in a fighter and going to another mothership. Martin sacrifices himself by taking the soon-to-be-detonated mothership into space, while Donovan and Julie escape in another fighter. They realize they've been successful in forcing the visitors off the planet, but that they're taking many Earth people with them. Donovan and Julie look at each other and silently decide to go over to them. Donovan kicks the ship in gear, and they go flying up after the second mothership. The sequel's last scene is they're heading for this mothership and its doors are closing. They just make it as the doors close, and the camera pans up the craft's side and locks on a window. We push closer and we see Liz, the star child, and reflected in the window are the stars. We're left wondering what will happen to Donovan and Julie as they try to stop Diana. And yet, we're given the promise of Liz being the link between the two races, which is the final image we saw. Diana's conversion process is dealt with quite a bit more in the second miniseries. 
Seemingly a combination of technology and psychology, this was intended to break the will of the subject and make their personality malleable to support the objectives of the visitors. Conversion was time-consuming and its reliability questionable. Thus, it was reserved for high-profile targets. In the subsequent series, drugs are added to the mix to maintain pliability post-conversion. Note that during the conversion process, Julie is wearing a full, almost flesh-colored body stocking similar to the skimpier versions that are worn by actors to simulate nudity. The same garment is worn by Sean when he is removed from the storage pod. We could interpret this as the producers attempting to imply nudity and a sense of extreme vulnerability, even though we know as a TV viewer the actors were covered. In A.C. Crispin's novelization, the characters are described as being naked in both instances. A couple of thoughts regarding the synthetic human masks and body coverings the visitors use to conceal their true nature. The visitors studied humans for years prior to revealing themselves, and evidently their culture subscribes to a hierarchy of beauty standards. Diana seems to be attracted to those considered beautiful or handsome, and many visitors have synthetic skins that let them appear conventionally attractive to humans. However, some have a plain appearance, such as Willie, who in the novelization reveals that even among his own people, he is not considered good-looking, which suggests the idea that visitors are assigned synthetic skins that correspond to the perceived attractiveness of their natural appearance in their culture. We must also assume the synthetic skins are how shall I put this, complete in nature, and as Data would say, fully functional, given the sexual joining of Brian and Robin Maxwell. Also, I'll note that surprisingly the characters have a debate about abortion, an issue the United States still struggles with. Not only did they discuss it, but the attempt is even made to abort Robin's pregnancy. In the 1980s, the topic showing up in scripted primetime television was not as rare as you might think. Family, Call to Glory, Spencer for Hire, Dallas, Magruder and Loud, and even Webster all had plot lines where abortion was considered by a main character. However, in these instances, it was presented as a faux option, something the character nearly always chooses against, or the issue is made moot by the plot development of a miscarriage or false positive on a pregnancy test. A TV character depicting as choosing to have an abortion, however, was extremely rare. In fact, prior to 1980, this only happened twice on primetime television. It was in 1972 that Maude famously featured a plotline where B. Arthur's character became pregnant at age 47 and chose to exercise the option available to her at the time in New York State. But a lesser-known instance was in a 1962 episode of The Defenders. In the episode The Benefactor, the father-son legal team played by E.G. Marshall and Robert Reed defend a doctor arrested for providing abortion care in violation of the law. Three of the series' regular advertisers pulled out, refusing to sponsor the episode, necessitating a last-minute advertiser being given a discounted rate. The episode and events surrounding it inspired a second-season Mad Men storyline in 2008.
In the final battle, a medical complication makes Robin's decision moot, and she indeed gave birth to her offspring. If the pop culture freakout moment of the original miniseries was Diana eating the guinea pig, for the final battle, it had to be the birth of Robin's baby. Or make that two babies, as viewers sat spellbound at the conclusion of part two to see first an apparently human infant girl with surprise serpent tongue, then an entirely reptilian infant, albeit with blue human eyes instead of the red, vertically slitted pupils we know the visitors have, crawl out of Robin's womb on its own. But the reptile baby didn't stick around long, as early the next night, we find it was really a plot device to reveal a biological weakness of the visitors that enabled the resistance to develop a bioweapon against them, in a twist on the ending of the original War of the Worlds story, the radio play of which had fascinated creator Kenneth Johnson some 30 years earlier. Like its predecessor, V the Final Battle was aired around the world in at least 17 countries. It started being rerun in local U.S. syndication in 1987, on cable station WGN in 1990, and on the Sci-Fi Channel in 1996. That same year, it made its way to VHS Rental, winning the Saturn Award for Best Genre Video Release. The year after the first miniseries was released on DVD, V. The Final Battle got its DVD release in August 2002. A Blu-ray of the miniseries was released by Warner Archive in 2020, and the title remains in print on both disc formats. Immediately following the success of V. The Final Battle in early May, NBC decided they wanted a weekly series for the fall of 1984. Normally, TV series were greenlit and well into production before May, when the networks would hold upfronts, announcing their fall programming lineups. The day after the final battle finished airing, it was being reported that NBC would include V in its lineup of 10 new series for that fall, joining other new one-hour dramas, Highway to Heaven, Hunter, Miami Vice, Partners in Crime, and Hot Pursuit, created by Kenneth Johnson. But to get V ready for a weekly series for that fall would require a rush job, which will be discussed on the next podcast. Forty years later, V still captivates pop culture consciousness. And as we'll see next time, while there have been attempts to revive V, nothing ever captured lightning in a bottle, as did the story and characters of Kenneth Johnson's 1983 original. Johnson's stories have often integrated literary influences, whether it was Greek mythology in The Bionic Woman, translating the Les Miserables fugitive Jean Valjean into David Banner on The Incredible Hulk, or Sinclair Lewis's 1935 novel that gave birth to V. And although we've never had a straight adaptation of It Can't Happen Here since 1968's Shadow on the Land, I have to include an honorable mention for the CBS TV special that aired on July 4, 1997, called What's Right with America. And now, the President of the United States. A new day is dawning in America. 
things are being put right. American men are asserting themselves and their women are standing down ready to do their share. This is the Collins way. Keep it simple, keep it just, keep it all for the men who earned it. Hosted by Patrick Duffy, the one-hour special was a look at a possible near future of the United States, seen through the eyes of a family that had been living overseas for eight years. Upon returning to the States, they find, during their absence, a political demagogue had been elected president. The Bill of Rights had been suspended. Women are considered property. Government controls all media. Elections are rigged, and boys are recruited to be child soldiers to fight those who resist the fascist regime, primarily women who have had their rights removed. Deciding to leave the country they used to call home, they are faced with a horrifying choice. The first half was a narrative starring Timothy Buzzfield, Janine Jackson, Amy Danlis, and Ryan Merriman as the Gordon family. Perhaps a bit hyperbolic to hammer home the story in a half hour, but effectively told. The second half presented interviews with people who had fought censorship, faced racism, and volunteered to help their community. I saw this when it aired and never forgot it, but did forget the title. Years later, I searched for it online and could never find even a reference to it. I recalled it starred Timothy Busfield, but even after IMDb added TV listings, could never find it listed under his work. It turns out it is mistakenly listed on his profile under self, and for the first time, I found it during research for this podcast. It is on YouTube for those interested. Never forget, V started out not as science fiction, but as a cautionary tale warning against systematic oppression and tyranny rising from within, before morphing into an invasion story in a science fiction wrapper. The themes and messages contained in V are still relevant and resonate strongly even today. After all, fascism and tyranny rarely announces itself as such, but usually arrives in a matter of degrees, coming wrapped in a cloak of tradition, strength, and the denigration of whatever group is deemed the enemy. Like on V, many can't see the face underneath until it is too late, and others refuse to, even after the mask is off. It can't happen here? For many, it indeed has happened, or is happening here. In closing, I can't do better than invoking the words of Abraham Bernstein. Each of us must be a ray of hope and join with others until we've become a blinding light, triumphant over darkness. More than anything, you must remember always which side you're on and fight for it. We have to help others, or else we won't have learned a thing. Go tell your friends. Next time on Forgotten TV... 
It turned out the final battle was not so final as V returned to our screens in October 1984 with a weekly TV series. But could it maintain the quality of what came before? On the next Forgotten TV, we'll take a look at every episode of V, the series. Hear how writer Stephen D'Souza was brought on as supervising producer to model the show after a classic 1943 film, only to leave after a couple of episodes. Hear the real reason episode 3 was pulled from the airing lineup, the ominous mid-season retooling. How V became like a nighttime soap opera, and hear the crazy, suggested, network-approved storylines. The battle for freedom continues next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is an independent listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. I'd like to welcome new executive producers, Andre Bjarkason, Robert, and Ron, and continue to thank the ongoing support of executive producers, Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and Joshua Driscoll. With producers, Eric Fusco, Julio Capa, K.L. Young, Ralph Caracillo, Trevor Pearson, and Mark Hadley. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by NBC, Warner Brothers Television, Kenneth Johnson Productions, Blatt Singer Productions, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. V and V, The Final Battle are the copyright and property of Warner Brothers Television, Kenneth Johnson Productions, Blatt Singer Productions, and possibly additional rights holders. Other series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips included are for the purposes of historical context, review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. Additional audio used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, check out Epidemic Sound. Link in the show notes. This podcast is copyright 2023 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and selected websites. While reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of that audio possible. Videoholic 1980s A, Joe Harnell Topic, Gung Fu Man 777, Cathode Tube, Christian Arthur, Sokol Keep, Legendary Musicians by History of Music, Still Watching Netflix, 80s TV Fan, Gillas Newitons, Dennis McCarthy Topic, Make a Wish, Warner Brothers Pictures, 11DB11, 
A. Fusco, The Rap Sheet, Cedar 1956, Movie and Video Game TV Spots, Tui Nguyen, Chuck D's All-New Classic TV Clubhouse. This podcast would not be possible without the research of James Van Heis, Dan Kopp, the contributors to the V-Pop Apostle website, and the V-Director's Commentary by Kenneth Johnson. Special thanks to David Braff and Ed Gonzalez. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following. Books. Science Fiction Television Series 1959-1989 by Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia. Fascist Lizards from Outer Space by Dan Kopp. Literature Suppressed on Political Grounds by Nicholas J. Carolides and Margaret Bald. Articles from the following periodicals. Starlog, numbers 71, 104, and 150. The V-Files, Book 1, Parts 1 and 2 and numerous newspaper articles clipped from newspapers.com. Content from the following online sources. Pop Apostle, RetroZap, Cult Film Freaks, Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, The Filming Location Channel on YouTube, Iernomas on YouTube, Imperial War Museums on YouTube, Defense Media Network, Holocaust Encyclopedia, DVD Talk, The Logbook, People, Slate, Vanity Fair, and Vox. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Damn scientists!